0: Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast. I'm here in Kenya today talking to Dominic Burbidge about his new book, An Experiment in Devolution, National Unity and the Deconstruction of the Kenyan State. So welcome Dominic and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is a really really fascinating book and it's it's published by Strathmore um, and you describe and discuss the Kenyan experiment in devolution um, and make I think an interesting case that has been very much a success story um, in a lot of dimensions. and So I was hoping we could talk about the different dimensions in which it has succeeded at about maybe starting out with why the Kenyans decided to have the constitutional revisions um, that put devolution in place.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. So and thanks for the interest. So the context to uh, the devolution experiment in Kenya is the 2010 constitution. Which came in the wake of the post election violence of 2007 2008, where it was really felt that the sorts of divisions that were coming up due to a winner takes all presidency was becoming unsustainable over time. And in fact, the idea was to return to a much earlier idea of what the nation should be, which had a much more federal character. Uh, so in the 1950s and the 1960s, there was a, a big debate in Kenya about whether at independence they should go for a unitary state or they should go for a federal state and in the end the um, the unitary uh, canon party won out and although the constitution at independence didn't fully reflect their views they made quick amendments uh, after independence to secure a sort of very strong center and a strong presidency. And so when it was felt that multipartyism was sort of tearing the country apart because of the democratization of this winner takes all presidency model, it was seen that maybe we should return back to some of the more federal ideas. And the best way of achieving that was thought not to reduce the country to a federal system exactly, but to have a constitution that puts county governments on a par with the national government, so created 47 of these, which are a a radical experiment in in two ways. One is that they are in the wake of an extremely centralized uh, bureaucracy and centralized uh, president, and they have a kind of interdependent status constitutionally with with the national government, Uh, independent but interdependent. And so they have their autonomies but the second reason is that they provide for a civil service in each of these counties which is distinct from the national civil service And one of the dilemmas that are involved in um, a lot of the accounts of um, Kenyan politics is the way in which you have a crossover not just of politics and business but also Elected politicians with management of the civil service, and a lot of the corruption literature, for example, reflects on the lack of impartiality among um, those in, in public office and the inability to direct development projects in a fair way across the country. And so, as part of the devolution settlement, they split the civil service such that you can't ever according to how the constitution is currently set up, re centralize any of its responsibilities.
0: And that's I mean you mentioned the corruption issue. And like one of the things that you that you argue in the book is that, you know, people think of devolution and deconcentration and other forms of, of decentralization as being ways in which you basically kind of spread the Spread the goodies and make it possible for corruption to just exist at many more levels and you push back against that a little bit So I think maybe you can tell us how you see this as not necessarily simply making corruption more widespread
1: Yeah, so it's a common criticism of devolution of in Kenya that it's sort of led to more corruption uh, and So people say we devolved corruption uh, that's all we devolved and that's um, a bit of a naive perspective, in my opinion, on a number of levels. So one is that there has been a a total understudy of local government uh, across Africa. And so what devolution forced people to do is to reflect on what is local government, what is its structures, what are its responsibilities and what are its personnel. And when they made that move, and it's not just a move from academics, but it's also from the national media houses, um and other kind of more center-based uh, political actors they discovered there are all these problems at the local level but those for example trying to deliver healthcare um in the aid industry from the center to the periphery were always running into these supply chain problems so it was apparent throughout um, the other reason why it's, it's naive is, is that the um the fact is that Having these local authorities already, what's essentially happened is a sort of democratization of them. So you have a kind of voting accountability which needs time to work itself out. And what that has meant is a huge local exposure of some corruption scandals. And as I've tried to argue elsewhere, sometimes our awareness of corruption doesn't actually correlate with the fact of the amount of corruption. And in fact, it's when things become a bit exposed, a bit accountable, a bit transparent, that we start to see it all over the place. And that's not a a story particular to Africa. In fact, you can have corruption ongoing for long periods in corporations uh, or or political institutions in the West, and some sort of whistleblower brings it out, or or some scandal brings it out, and that will lower the confidence in those institutions or, or people and so we can't always draw from a, from a general sentiment the actual uh, empirical changes.
0: No, exactly. And actually, it's one of the ironies, right, is that people become more aware and reporting goes up and people become less trusting of institutions. At the times, often when they're in the midst of reforms and maybe, you know, actually are improving. It's a... Yeah. It makes it hard to know what to do with things like satisfaction and, and trust and even sometimes reporting of these incidents. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean a good example is, is with healthcare. So under the 2010 Constitution in Kenya, the whole of healthcare is devolved. And there was huge corruption in the Ministry of Health prior, and now there's still issues of corruption. But what happened was that suddenly all of the county governments now needed to pay the salaries of the doctors and nurses. And this was sort of thrown onto their laps suddenly because of problems with what was called the transitional authority not really providing a very incremental uh, movement from the old era to the new era. And so things were thrown on, on people's laps. And so when the county governments reviewed the personnel, they found all of these fake workers or in the country are called ghost workers. And so they didn't know who to pay and who not to pay. And that led to strikes from the doctors and nurses and a stalling of, of healthcare provision. But overall, in the long term, you say, well, what was actually going on in the past? It's hard to, it's hard to, uh, to say that that was, that was necessarily better.
0: Exactly, exactly. The other thing that you talk about with regards to reporting is the extent to which you, you make the point that maybe the country hasn't yet caught up with the importance of, you know, kind of the, the importance of local politics. So you note that there's several kind of uh, killings or assassinations or you know and and sort of mishaps that have occurred because the stakes at the local level have become higher. Um, And yet you argue that the reporting is not necessarily there. I'm just wondering if that's been changing. Is there a sense in which the country is and the media in particular is becoming more aware of how important these sort of the local is.
1: Yeah, no, that's certainly the case. So what I tried to track in the book is genuine local political disputes, But the whole orientation of the book is an attempt, and others will be able to say whether it's successful or not, to look at political change from the county upwards. So too often in political commentary on Africa, we have a sort of center periphery uh, understanding whereby we look at reforms, especially constitutional reforms, and we say, is this a check on the power of the center? But from the point of view of the ordinary citizen, it's in fact just one local government that matters most of all. And the politics that is involved in local representation and local accountability is disproportionately important for your day-to-day life. So when you take it thoroughly from that perspective, In fact you start to see how much is understudied Um, and so much of the sort of elite level um, research can essentially be question begging on the extent to which these reforms will sort of happen according to what the what the center desires and it's not just here emphasizing the periphery but it's also emphasizing periphery periphery relations so one area which I'm very interested in is looking at the boundary disputes between counties, which often don't involve any national government actors, and is essentially one county government confronting another over the use of resources within the disputed area or who gets to do tax collection in that disputed area. And that is really a, an angle to, to politics which we're often failing to detect, and it's also often being Uh, under detected by uh, journalists um, within uh, Kenya but those things are changing because there's money now shifting to the counties, there's a lot of business interest in the sorts of opportunities. In a country that's always been focused on Nairobi as a sort of capital of East Africa, not just the capital of Kenya you now have a sense that there's great opportunity elsewhere and so if you pick up your newspapers Now you will find a county section, and they'll work very hard to capture uh, the voices and the debates and what's going on in different projects uh, locally, because they know that's what's uh, selling at the moment.
0: That's excellent. And then with regards to the boundary disputes, I found it interesting because you make the point that there are civil and and those that have become violent, right? So there's, in a sense, kind of two ways in which these boundary disputes get carried out. Um, But you've also sort of thought of them as being what you've called sort of ethnic disputes and what you consider to be economic disputes. These questions about was there a market on the the boundary or a town that was important that basically both counties want to claim, right? Mm-hmm. But I was I was wanting to hear a little bit more about why we get that distinction between ethnic and, and economic disputes and if it makes a difference in terms of how they actually get carried out at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So. Uh, By way of background, um, the idea behind these uh, boundary disputes is really um, something that originates in the colonial era, where you had a kind of ethnic zoning, which were first called native reserves, and then were called districts, and the uh, British colonial project tried to keep people within... Their respective area, what was determined to be their respective area and that led to all sorts of uh, problems because of course people want to move, they want to move for economic opportunity or they just want to reconnect with family um, or whatever it is and so and at the same time the uh, colonial government didn't really have the capacity to properly uh, entrench these boundaries so instead they would issue Kipande certificates which were sort of like identity documents to certain individuals which allow them to go to certain places, for example for trade, but anyone found without an appropriate document would be uh, put in prison or taken back to wherever they, they were from. So that created a very um, strong idea that these administrative territories in ideal terms would in fact be ethnically homogeneous. And uh, Timothy Parsons has worked a lot on that and to look at how, in fact, you had a lot of interpenetration uh, between groups, which is not reflected at all in the way the Colonials tried to uh, create the the administration. But it does mean that now you have a strange situation whereby because uh, ethnic groups tended to have a certain specialty in terms of their production, so they might be pastoralists, um, or they might be agriculturalists, or uh, they might focus on on trade, or be, you know, a group that migrates a lot. Um, It meant that, in fact, there's huge benefit of having interaction between groups economically, and so the colonials would often create markets or trading centers which are actually on the boundaries between what were these sort of native reserves or uh, ethnicized districts, uh, which puts local government in a very funny situation uh, in the independence era because it means that a lot of your economic activity is actually happening exactly on the boundary with the neighboring uh, district or county. And so how do you regulate that in terms of uh, tax collection becomes extremely difficult. And so you, in fact, have cases of fights between tax collectors. whereby both county governments are insisting on their tax collectors, you must claim that as our turf. And of course, it's very hard to determine the, the boundary. It's, just, it's not just a lack of awareness, because precisely they were built to be in between uh, the two different areas. And that happens even when the, the two districts can be of broadly majority of the same ethnic. Uh, group.
0: In, in the two in the two districts, each of the districts exactly. is on the same ethnic yeah. group as the other. Yeah,
1: okay. and so this sort of um, proves that these aren't really only about ethnic division. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you have issues of cattle rustling, for example, which tend to cross boundaries, but are interethnic uh, in that it tends to be that those involved view the other ethnicity as somehow an enemy towards um, being able to, to maintain their, their cattle and those areas it, 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 it can be inter-ethnic similarly you can have a crossover with local politicians who have projects either from their constituency development fund or because they have a county government project and they may have built a road or um, a hospital or something and now the, the, the exact location of that is being disputed and so it can be both ethnic or just political because you're trying to claim that you've helped your area when in fact others are saying that's not even legally your area.
0: Exactly. When you talk about the, the homogeneity of, of areas, it makes a lot of sense and you've also in the discussion in the book looked at representation and how much our you know what's the relationship between the heterogeneity of an area and, you know, and how much one group gets sort of overrepresented, if you, if you will, right? Because it's a question about will, especially minorities, be represented. Um, and I found it really fascinating that you are saying that the urban areas where we get a lot of heterogeneity, but a, a group may still think of it as, quote unquote, their area, are the ones where we get sort of the most overrepresentation, or a lot of times we get overrepresentation of, of sort of the kind of original group right Um, and I just wanted to to sort of think a little bit you know kind of ahead in the sense that you know if we're if we're looking at continued urbanization or migration and and you know say 20 years down the line where that may even you know kind of continue to be more to what extent if there's a way of thinking about it that you would expect that this kind of ownership which is historically embedded for the reasons that you've just noted would continue to give primacy or do you think that there's a way in which, do you have any evidence that people move away from that and say, okay, you know, it's more about good leadership than it is about, you know, my co-ethnic being elected or the sort of those who originally have a claim to this area as continuing to be, you know, kind of dominant here?
1: Yeah, it's very hard to say what would lead to a sort of transition. What I try to... Um... Argue in the book is that sometimes we we uh, have been using a binary of whether an issue is um, ethnic inclusion of your own group within representation or whether something is sort of policy orientated Mm -hmm. kind of um, and instead I'm trying to to push for re understanding of what is expressly a political. Um, question and that means that the the political is in part about what is the kind of optimal policy solution and some debate over what would be the best sort of tax rate or the best sort of infrastructural upgrade or whatever it is but it's in part also a a diplomatic effort to bring in to the conversation people who feel ignored what devolution has emphasized throughout has been deep public participation when coming to decisions, which means that you may not be able to make the optimal, in your opinion, optimal decision because you can't get the public participation for that and so you have to compromise uh, those goals. And when it comes to the question of ethnic inclusivity, one has to realize that how communities self-understand and explain leadership is embedded with their very notion of what are the the values of, of their group and what are their traditions. So what Devolution does manage to do I feel is to give scope for having that local diversity on notions of leadership and even the input of the voices of elders of the community or local customs, local traditions in the shaping of what it is that the politician should do normally when you have a sort of national level ethics on what is the appropriate conduct for a certain office Mm -hmm. you are effectively trying to make everyone from all these different traditions follow the same code of conduct and of course you could say there are some traditions you disagree with and don't like but it becomes a very difficult, communicative task to be able to say to these uh, varied groups that we all need to follow this one model of uh, how leadership should be. So facilitating that local through a sort of normative dialogue on the very definition of a leader is something that can, in my opinion, be much better facilitated at the local level. level.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Meaning with regards to the the, well, let's start with the, the, the degree of diversity that we see sort of on the ground in terms of how these roles are taken up or how they are, you know, how procedures are followed, how they've been defined and who's included and excluded. Can you give us a better sense of what that looks like and, and where we've we seen sort of very different approaches taken?
1: Yeah, so one of the big different approaches that I uh, emphasize is what I call these, the rise of the independence and that is that previously in Kenyan politics one had to always align very closely with a national level presidential candidate. Now that person who normally represents the whole of your ethnic group at the national stage could form a coalition eventually during the campaign period with some other ethnic uh, group and, and other leaders um, but in the main, there was a sort of expected conformity towards that um, that person. Of course, there are exceptions to that, uh, especially amongst the, uh, the Luya and amongst, for example, the Somali and a, a case, occasionally um, the Kamba, But in general, it was seen big ethnic blocs. They all vote in one way and that is towards the presidency. And that's what affects the outcome of your level of representation later. But what we see in devolution is a very robust debate locally about who is known here. Okay. And that knowing, knowability of the person is particularly about their character as an individual. And so it breaks away from questions about who they're connected to at the central government or national government level, and also breaks away from ideas of whether it matters which political party you belong to because effectively the function of a party is to be able to form national level coalitions but the governor election is just of one individual plus the deputy governor which is their running mate and if you can know them personally it doesn't actually matter which party or national coalition they're a part of and that really turns things upside down in terms of coordinating Kenyan politics because it means that you have this central uh nairobi based players going with cap in hand to beg for the sorts of endorsements and support from all of these regions versus the other way around where people low level players in the periphery would be then trying to as much as possible associate with the big man at the center so that's one example of of just a huge uh, shift that's occurring and it means that you can have an expected player, which would be good for national uh, alliances, maybe funding, campaign funding, being rejected locally, and instead turning to someone else who's thought to deliver, and it may be that that person doesn't end up delivering, maybe there's lots of corruption, but always the veto comes with the the local voters themselves.
0: Yeah, and that is actually, it's a really big difference from places where they're still dependent on the national party or at least the sort of the central government, right, for the revenues that come into the local the local area for access to you know development funds, etc. To what extent do we have variation in the county level in terms of the the percentage of the revenue or the percentage of the budget that is locally versus centrally produced?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, the way it works is that the Constitution puts a minimum of 15% of the national revenue should be transferred to the county. Um, But in practice, most years, it's been about 25 to 30% that's being transferred. There's a little bit of difficulty in making that calculation because the Constitution states that that should be according to a percentage as according to the last audited accounts. But sometimes the well, oftentimes, the national accounts are actually about three or four years out of date compared to the current budget, and so when we say percentage, we mean as compared to a few years back. Uh, so a bit of a kind of bias going on there. But in the main, uh, you can say with confidence that the constitutional requirement has been fulfilled. Now, apart from that transfer, you also have the. Duties and uh, property taxes and services, which re- receive fees or, or payments that go directly to the county governments, and all of that they keep. They don't need to share any of that at the national level. Does that mean that they're financially robust? I mean, you still have a very um, strong uh, national government financial power. And that's because the whole economy in Kenya can be focused on import-export things, it can be focused on tourism and is supported with some aid. And all those three are big areas where national government will get all of the the revenue and they can't be well understood at at the county level. And so there's still, you know, a big emphasis on what national government can do to transform the country. But what's interesting is that in the past in Kenya you basically have had large swathes of the country that have been completely ignored uh, by the national government and so even this relatively smaller amount let's say 20 30 percent of funding when it is spread equally between these other places is more than they've ever got and so i put in the um the last chapter of the book an analysis of how much money does the county government have compared to an individual's average income of that county? And because of the inequality within Kenya, you have places that are so poor that in fact, the county government's financial clout is approaching half the average income of people in that area. So the biggest uh, sort of difference, for example, is that in a place one of the richest of Kenya, which is very close to Nairobi, is Kiambu County.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have a county government which has its financial base about the equivalent of 2% of someone's annual income on average in the county. But in a place like Isiolo, further to the north, where things have been typically neglected by a national government, that is are at about 43%. Wow. Um, of an average income within the county it's because you're dealing with poorer people and and therefore much relevant versus the the, the size of, of of the local economy so it's a bit difficult to say oh what's the kind of general net effect of this sort of financial transfers the effect is huge in places which have previously been ignored
0: but the political effect if i understand you correctly is also really hard really big right because by having it be a fixed amount and it it's no longer sort of at the discretion of the central government which counties get it and which counties don't, that's why people can afford to vote for somebody who's not necessarily from the right party or or well connected centrally. If, if that, is exactly. that
1: the yeah the case? exactly? So there's of course been a pushback from national government politicians in trying to co-opt uh, some of these channels, and this has been done in a number of ways. One is that there's been allegations of tampering with the actual transfer system such as some counties seem to get rapidly the transfers from national government and others seem to, to
0: take a while uh, take
1: a while they seem to have broadband connection issues <laughs> and so it there's in that sense it kind of can be some manipulation in another way there can also be a manipulation in the sense that The national government still has many duties and a lot of funds and so they have created this idea of sort of mega projects which they will do often in partnership with a particular county government and so some political allegiance with the national government is going to help you in attracting those sorts of projects towards your county but the thing is that the impartiality of the distribution funds is really coming from Commission on Revenue Allocation, which is an independent commission that was very well run uh, in the early years of the new constitution, it was still well run, and that set in stone a, a very simple, clear criteria of how funds would be split, and it has an inclusion of land area, it has an inclusion of population area, it has a kind of basic equal share, and it also has some inclusion of poverty levels. and that fourfold criteria just makes it simple and somewhat transparent in how the money is distributed. When you go to a place which has hitherto been almost totally neglected by national government, and you say, oh, but still national government are doing some mega projects in places they like, but the difference is still major compared to the the pre-2010 situation.
0: That makes sense. The other area of, of kind of central local almost tensions at times that I found fascinating was with regards to the the law and security issues. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about both why that's been a more difficult sort of issue to to address and how you you do a nice sort of case studies of four four different areas and what lessons we've learned from them.
1: Yeah, it's really an interesting area and complicated area. Um, So the Frequently, in opinion polls in the country, you'll have um, citizens saying that the most urgent issue for them is security, which is surprising because sometimes, as an outsider, one can come in and say, oh, you know, people living in poverty, so surely they want jobs and they want um, money and, and food and everything. And instead, they reply to your survey and say security is the main issue. Now, what's going on there? People feel very insecure Partly because security is totally outside of their ha- out of their hands. Partly also because the security services are somewhat in opposition um, to what people are trying to do at community level. They seem to be in arm of a particular interest, um, rather than impartial, rather than following rule of law. But the other reason is that because security issues are totally connected to land issues in the country and security in a way enforces some of the uh, land provisions which then directly affects your poverty level, what you can do economically, questions of inheritance or just the stability of your homestead. So all these things being so closely tied together, one's in a bit of an awkward situation because a lot of the problems that people want government to solve are issues that have been reserved to the national government through the docket of security, and so you have a strange situation where you have a, a thorough democratization of the county government, whereby leaders will often talk as able to solve some of these problems, and of course people will vote on that basis. But when you look at the constitution, you say, well, actually, that would go outside of your remit uh, if you if you do it in a certain way. So one of the interesting examples they look at in, in the book is Machakos County where Governor Alfred Mutua has funded police cars and CCTV and police dogs and even uh, houses, kind of barracks, uh, homes for um, for for police personnel and none of that is constitutional but somehow having a police car which says County Government of Machakos on it patrolling the area seems to give huge public support and of course you can bring him through the slow processes of the court but who wants to bring someone to court for enhancing security (laughs) in their area? So it becomes a really tough question as to what is uh, appropriate specifically for the land issue, One's in a very difficult situation that sometimes land has been uh, understood in customary ways uh, of which the 2010 constitution tries to provide some categories of talking about community land or public land but in the main that doesn't really solve some of the long-standing issues of having assumed ownership uh, locally which is, hasn't been properly documented in a way that the national government or the National Lands Commission um, will have uh, proper respect for and so when we look at the use of uh, security services with respect to the land it would normally be to enforce something without much local knowledge and on that front the county government tends to because it's in touch and it knows the history of the place and has politicians from that area will have a much better understanding of what is true in terms of real ownership and use of land locally and so you end up having a bit of a caving in from the national security apparatus towards local knowledge and that can come via the official positions of the county governments whereas in the past we were seeing that there is no representation of, of these dilemmas
0: okay so they can essentially help to solve that set of that set of issues
1: yeah so a, a good example is um being able to determine uh, ownership through elders uh, and when the national government tries to do these things, they'll send people that don't know the language uh, of, of these elders, don't know the people, and don't understand the types of economic activities that, that people in that area are engaged with. So your very notion of what is scarce uh, is in doubt, and you have different ideas. And so you really do need sort of some local knowledge to get a handle on, on these things even to say what really counts as inheritance practice mm-hmm. uh, in the area or not. Now, of course, there are problems and, and, and the county governments can fall into the same sorts of problems that happened 60, 70 years ago when you had the colonial administration saying we can have this customary law category which should be decided by local officials who may reinterpret what is customary, uh, recodify... To suit their own to interests. Their own. So, of course, there are all those issues. But it's part of a local discourse which has its own self awareness and its own uh, morality, which is at least something, versus the held aloft kind of bureaucratic arm which has no understanding of, of how things are done.
0: So that brings me to a final final question for you. Um, you know, when I look at this, I find it both a fascinating and a really interesting and, and useful experiment in, in how devolution can be done. And I wonder about the relationship between it and, say, identity. You know, twenty or thirty years out, right? Because we are talking about um, giving primacy to local practices and local identities, et cetera, which is, I think, in, in many ways, very extremely useful, right? And in in some ways, it's very democratic. Um, the question is, does it also cement differences or kind of um, reassert differences that maybe, you know, otherwise would be sort of are washed away, but that they would become less o- less over time
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question in the book I've I me mean, as you know I've been sort of grappling with that a little bit and I can't say uh, Have any easy answers, but I would say that there is an assumption sometimes that some sort of economic progress would water down the distinctiveness of, of these identities like how we all go to McDonald's therefore we have no sort of <laughs> idea of what is our local culinary you know traditions so we take that view of a kind of the globalizing narrative of individualism and we want to just give more time for economic growth and hope that that will sort of move people uh, beyond these divisions but there's another route uh, which is a bit underexplored which is not to assume in the first place that they are divisions so there's a little bit of work on this from a prolific um, historian of Kenya called John Lonsdale who writes between of what's the difference between political tribalism and um, moral ethnicity and when he speaks about moral ethnicity what he's saying is that there are some values or moral norms that are part of an internal discourse about appropriate behavior which are just internal and aren't defined through difference to other groups so if i were to say to you what makes a good academic you might list a few values which are in a sense universal values so you might say you know you 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 defer to the truth you know when, when someone criticizes and, and they have good basis, then you change your view. It might be that you are always um, sort of impartial when you apply your research methods. Uh, it may be that you're someone who can concentrate hard on a single sort of area of inquiry. These features of the human person are not good things for everyone. You can't say, oh, that was what would make Donald Trump a much better person because in fact, his area of activity is a different type of of profession. Likewise, you wouldn't say it about the best golf player or the best uh, soccer player. So, these are qualities and and understandings of value that are somehow internal to a group or a practice and aren't defined, expressly, simply by identity difference. Now, one of the difficulties with um, politics in Africa is that we essentially have huge differences in traditions over what is a sort of moralities or understandings of justice, um, understandings of peace, and these differences we worry about and we slap on top a sort of, we're going to do economic development which will rid people from these distinctions, or we're going to affirm individual rights so we're in these bills of rights we help fund people to bring cases to court on the basis of uh, uh, infringement of their rights. And we're in some ways patching towards an idea of what would be social harmony, but we're ignoring the basic question, which is that to really understand how someone is in community, you need to know A, their language, B, their practices, and you can't ever Uh, move, move away from, from that, that basic need.
0: Dominic, I think that's a fantastic place to, to end. And I want to thank you again for taking time to join us today. It's, it's a really, really excellent book. And I hope that people get a chance to read it as well. Thank Thank you you so much
1: for the interest. Thanks.